Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul's letter to the Corinthians was mainly corrective. And it's obvious to any reader that the church of Corinth had innumerable problems. If you recall early on, there were those people that were from the house of Chloe who reported it uh, to Paul that there were some very negative situations that had existed and had cropped up at the church of Corinth. One of the biggest ones, and the, and the one that had the strangest earmark of carnality, which manifested itself in their petty individualism, which some have described as little denominations or many denominations. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. To the disparaging of other teachers, that is, pitting one against the other. I don't listen to anybody else but Paul. I listen to nobody else but Jesus, you know, those type of things. And Paul rightly pointed out that this was the mark of carnality. He said they're still infants in the Lord, babies in Christ. Because the body of Christ, Paul pointed out, is not divided. Ministries, if they are true ministries, should always be complementary and not competitive. I don't like competitiveness in a body of Christ. I don't like it. I've seen it so many times it isn't funny. And, and sometimes it's done in fun, and that's okay as long as it isn't taken to any craziness. But I've seen craziness. But ministries should be complementary. I, I remember even when this one started. I wrote a letter to the brothers, Dave and Ed, and I said, hey, what I want to see with something beautiful is a complementary ministry to this church, not competitive, because it can, it can, it can lead into that. We're not in competition. We're, we should be complementing the work that's being done, even amongst other churches, and so often that's not the case. I had a brother in the Lord who I respect today telling me that he saw this, that there was not much complementary help among churches. And there's many reasons for that. I'm not going to go into it tonight, but, but it, it really shouldn't be that way. But don't misunderstand. When you're talking about ministries being complementary, especially among church to church, we're not talking about ecumenicalism, if you understand what that is. That's a whole other sermon, and I'm not going to go into it. Look the word up. We're not talking about ecumenicalism. We're talking about joining hands with a ministry. We have to make sure that we are in agreement with that ministry. And there's a very simple litmus test, if you will. Do they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? And before you say yes, make sure you know what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Because many people don't. Many people think that if it just says Christian, that somehow it's a legitimate body of Christ. That's why you always hear me talk about the issue of orthodoxy. I'm not talking about dead orthodoxy. We're talking about orthodoxy. That which is straight. That which is right. Something that's not new. Remember the adage. And I, I started off... You know, when we started this study three years ago, I told you, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's nothing new. The gospel's not new. It's been around for 2,000 years. The same gospel. But has it been convoluted? It has been convoluted. And it started in the church of Corinth. <laughs> this mixture of crazy divisions and the mixture of grace and works and all kinds of crazy stuff. But it wasn't meant to be that way. The Bible's still clear. The Bible's still true. And if we'll simply do what it says, you'll be a lot happier, guaranteed, and profitable. And that is by souls being added to the kingdom. That's what we're really looking for. But unfortunately, the church of Corinth had fallen into this competition. And these little competing groups were causing this division in the body of Christ. And of course, Paul pointed out once again that this was a mark of carnality. As Paul closed out chapter 4, we had seen him basically complete his rebuke, if you will, of the divisions that existed in the church there. And now he moves on to an even more worse problem. 
and that is the one of immorality. And I've told you a million times, gang, whatever's going on in the body of Christ, be that personal or local to us or even globally, look down. Because where you're studying at is where you need to be. It's what we need to hear. And Paul was dealing with some of the issues that we deal with even in the church today. Or let me rephrase that. Paul's dealing with issues here in this church that we ought to be dealing with today, and we don't. But we should. And so he's going to deal with this issue of immorality. And it existed here at the church. Thus, we're turning to verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And he starts off by saying, It is reported commonly that there, are, that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. Wow. I want you to take note of the fact Paul says it was reported commonly. It was common. That word in the Greek there means noised abroad. It means everybody knew it. It means this was their reputation. As a church. So often we like to deceive ourselves as to what our church's reputation is. Every church has one. Whether they know, most of the people in that particular church don't know what it is. You got to get outside the church to find out what the reputation of that church actually is. Because our judgment of us is always so much better than what the world's judgment of us is. Or, unfortunately, maybe even other churches. But this is the cornice. This was their reputation. That it was common, Paul said. It was reported commonly among you that there's fornication. And then he makes this note, and if you're taking notes tonight or you're listening to me by radio, make this note. That it was such a type of fornication that even the Gentiles didn't have a word for it. That was how disgusting it was. That a man should have his father's wife. Thus, he's talking about a man who was engaged in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. Pretty bad stuff. Now, fornication, the word itself really is an umbrella term. We like to throw it out there, but it's actually an umbrella term. It comes from the word porneia, which is from the ground word porneo, which basically is where we get the word pornography from. But it means anything that is outside of the Word of God when it comes to sex, be that man or woman. It, it's an umbrella term. It means a lot of things. And it's used in a lot of different ways. The problem in Corneth was that they were so busy, and I want you to get this, they were so preoccupied with the, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Jesus, you know, the little divisions that were going on that they were allowing this situation with this man and his stepmother to go on in their midst. Not only did they let it go on, and you need to get this from the text, they were proud of it. You're going to hear that here in a minute. Paul's going to tell them that they're gloating, they're, they're puffed up, was not good. They, they gloried in it. Why? They thought that it was an earmark of grace. <laughs> and I know if you're hearing this, and some of you even sitting here, you're going, what? Yeah. But I'm telling you, it's not uncommon even in the church today. What do you mean? I realize that incestuous situations are extremely outside the norm. But let me tell you one that's not that is readily accepted in the church today. And that is people who just cohabitate. People who are just living in sin. People who are not married. And we want to make every excuse in the world why that's perfectly okay. And in the body of Christ, it is not okay. It is considered fornication. It is part of that. Always has been. Always will be. You can't get away from it if you want to. But it's readily, it's readily accepted. And we tolerate it because we want, to be, we want people to think we're gracious. So we don't want to say anything to them. You know. These guys were the same way. They didn't want to say anything. They didn't want to upset the brethren, you see. So they just allowed it. Because they were preoccupied by so many other things. 
thought they were gracious. Really, they were just accepting. And there's a vast difference between the two. So often we, we think graciousness is just a smile and a pat on the back and, hey, come y'all, come on in, you know. Well, when you say that in a church, you can be talking about a lot of craziness. Now, we want to be gracious. That is, we want to preach the grace of Christ. We want to let people know that there is redemption in Jesus, that there is deliverance from sin, and that you can have a life that is not only right before God, but right in Christ. You can and you can come as you are, but God loves you so much to, he will not allow you to stay as you are. And so often we think that that's what's being, but that's what's being preached today again in most churches. Come as you are, stay as you are. And that's not the gospel. Because the gospel is a supernatural thing. Never forget that. I was talking with a young man today who was talking, he thinks he's going into ministry. And I said, well, brother, pray about it because your wife's going to, she's going to be put to the test. You know, he goes, well, she's not really keen to it. And I said, what do you mean? Well, she's not really keen to it. What do you mean? Well, she doesn't really go to church. <laughs> what? Your wife doesn't go to church. What do you mean she don't go to church? She don't go to church. Why not? And he couldn't really give me an answer other than, you know, I said, no, listen to me, brother. Well, she makes a profession of faith. I said, listen, the devil says that there's a God. See, this is what Christianity, and this guy's wanting to be a pastor, brother. Listen to me. I'm not picking. I'm just trying to encourage people in the right direction. Listen, when we just allow people to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and we stop there, and we don't say, what is it that you believe about Jesus? We are doing a disservice to them. We're not encouraging them. We're not challenging them. And so we wind up with people who are in the ministry whose life, and it's going to, I told him, I said, you need to focus on that, brother. Get to the bottom of it because it will be a hindrance to you eventually. It's not come as you are, stay as you are. It's a supernatural thing. You know, I told him, I said, First, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, what is it? He goes, I don't know. Let me quote it for you. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now listen, that's a supernatural thing. That doesn't mean that once I make a profession of Jesus, I look at the list of rules and regulations and go, what have do I do? What, what do I got to do now? That's called clonyism. That's not, that's not regeneration. But when a person is genuinely born again, they have repented of their sin. They understand their necessity for a Savior. Then the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes into that person. And when that person is filled with the Holy Ghost, it is he that doeth the work, not me. You know, the, the verse that we love to hear quoted all the time, but never, is never completed, you know, completely, is work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But the rest of it says, for it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So it's a supernatural thing. When a person is genuinely born again, they will have a love for Christ. Now, you're going to grow in grace and knowledge. I understand that. But Paul says it was like scales had fallen from his eye. And I think that that is a common example of most Christians, and probably some of your testimony would be the same, that when you genuinely finally gave your life to Christ, when you finally accepted what Jesus Christ had done for you, and you were born again, that you, you know, did you, was you able to quote the Bible in entire No. But something changed. Something changed. The way you saw things, the way you heard things, something changed. Why? Because when the Spirit of God comes into a man, you can't help it. It can't be helped. It's something that is supernatural. But today, unfortunately, what's being taught as the gospel is not a gospel. It's an acceptance of anything. And the church of Cornus was, was, was falling into this. And here's this guy having an incestuous relationship with his mother. And they're like, don't say nothing to him because we want to be gracious. Well, that's not grace. That's crazy. That's just absolute nuts. But look at the body of Christ. It's to the point where not only are we doing it, but whole denominations are actually allowing their clergy and everybody else to do it. What do you think is, where's, it, where's the line going to stop? It won't stop. You know, we, we think homosexuality is the big thing. It's, I mean, it's part, it falls under that umbrella of fornication, no doubt. But now we have whole denominations 
and, and I couldn't list them all, who not only want to engage in that, but let me tell you something, gang. It's going to come a time when you're going to have heterosexuals who are going to want to be behind pulpits, and some of them are already, who are not married, who are living in sin, and they simply want everybody to say that's cool. You know, hey, everything. You know, it's called inclusivism. And we're, we're living it. We're seeing it. But it started here at Corneth. You could actually write Corneth down as one of the first inclusive churches because they were so gracious, you see. They just wanted to draw a circle and count everybody in. But it's unfortunate because Jesus actually drew a line and said, pick a side. He told the people, gang, when you hear me say that, you go, oh, Jesus wouldn't draw a line. Jesus absolutely drew a line. Jesus drew a line so strict that he said, you're either for me or you are against me. Well, that sounds like pick a side to me. Pick Jesus. <laughs> Give me Jesus, as the song says. But the church of Corinth, these guys were such babies in Christ that they mistook grace for acceptance. And not let us do that, you know. We want to see people come. They need the Lord. No doubt, regardless of what their sin situation is, we want them to come in the door. We want them in the pew. We want them to hear the gospel. But to simply bring them in. And, you know, the old adage in Christendom is, if you don't use them, you lose them. And there's that crazy mindset. And what, what happens? They wind up in the worship band. They wind up teaching Sunday school. They wind up elders. They wind up deacons. And some of them wind up pastors. And that's crazy. This ought not so to be. This is what Paul's trying to deal with here. Because these guys had not dealt with this properly. Look at verse 2. He says, and you are puffed up. It means you're proud. And have not rather mourned. You see, that's what they should have been doing. Keep it in mind, Paul doesn't say there's this incestuous relationship that this guy was doing ministry. I don't believe for a moment that he was. I think this was a typical pew warmer. He was in the pew. But Paul says instead of them being puffed up with pride, thinking somehow they were gracious, they should have been mourning. They should have been mourning that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from them. For verily, he says, as absent in body but present in spirit, I've judged already as though I were present concerning him that has done this deed. They prided themselves on their inclusiveness. They're all accepting. Not grace, but allowing the existence, this condition of fornication to go on among them without even grieving over it. Sin ought to make us sad, gang. It ought to make us grieve because it certainly grieves the Holy Ghost. But they didn't. But Paul had already judged the situation. He says, for in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 4, when you are gathered together and my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Wow. That's powerful. What's he mean by that? Well, there's an interesting little passage in Matthew. You can write it down. I'm going to read it for you. It's Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. And of course, it's Jesus speaking. And he says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault and thee and him alone. I mean, just you and him. Go tell him. If he shall hear you, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more. That in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church as a whole. But if he neglects to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen and a publican. Now, the bottom line that, that Jesus is saying here is that the issue really is restoration. That's really what he's seeking for. Restoration is the ultimate goal. You want to see a brother restored. So when somebody has sinned against you, he says, go to him. And I do think it's interesting. Jesus actually told it two ways. 
He says, if your brother sins against you, go to your brother. He also says, if you've sinned against your brother, go to your brother. So it doesn't matter who does the sinning. In reality, it's restoration that what the Lord wants to see always. And it's what we need, to be honest with you. If, if we don't have restoration, then we don't have Christianity. But Christianity is all about restoration. But that's the first thought is restoration. Matter of fact, in Galatians 6, 1, Paul writing to them, he says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault or sin, he says, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself lest you also be tempted. That's the part that we normally don't do. You know. So often when brothers or sisters are taken in a fault, we're good at judging. We're just not good at restoration. We're not good at considering ourselves lest we also be tempted because we think what? I would never be tempted with such a thing. That poor soul, poor sinning person. Not I, because the Lord has delivered me from such things. Let a man take heed, the Bible says, when he thinks he stand lest he fall. Fact is, is that we are all humans. We are all susceptible at all times. We need that continual cleansing of the, of the blood of Christ, as he tells us in 1 John, to keep us safe from sin. It's that continual cleansing that makes me righteous at all times with God, but totally dependent upon Jesus Christ. But the basic thing here is restoration. It's really the, it's our first duty concerning a brother or sister who's fallen. And we're supposed to go to them in meekness and in tenderness and seeking to restore them to a proper walk, not just with the Lord, but within the body of Christ. Even if we have to ask them to leave. I remember one instance in, in my own personal ministry when I was pastoring Calvary Chapel. And it was a couple that had uh, fallen into some sin. I won't even go into what it was. But it was, it was bad. And it was bad to the point where I, I didn't even know the full uh, impact of it till one evening. I was teaching. It was on a Sunday night. And, you know, all, sometimes pastors are, um, I don't want to say shielded, but they're unaware. Let me put it that way. They're unaware of what's going on in the congregation. It's not because they don't, are not concerned with it, but sometimes there's just stuff going on under the, I call them little fires or little fires brewing that you don't really know about, you know. And the last thing as a pastor you want to wind up doing is running around trying to put them out because there's so many of them, <laughs> it'll, just, it'll keep you distracted. But there are those things going on, and this was one of them, and I was, I wasn't unaware of it, but I didn't realize the, the I didn't realize how big it was until one Sunday night. Had a great service. And I remember walking to the back where the uh, sound booth was. and I turned around and I literally saw the whole congregation and they were literally broken into like two major halves. And the one guy who was involved in this, all of his friends and, 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 and those who were on his side were all on this side and then the other people who were involved were on the other side. It was like, oh, my lands. I've got a split, you know, over this issue. And so we got together with the elders, and I said, look, here's the situation. We called them in. And we had to tell them, look, until you get this situation rectified in the sight of God, and you call me, I'll set you up a meeting with the elders, with the board of elders. Don't come back. I don't want you at the fellowship. We don't want to see you at the dinners. We, we love you, but we want to see this rectified. You're causing division in the body. That only happened one time. What happened? I had to say that from the pulpit to the whole church. It was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. And I remember one of the young men who I was discipling after that service, because it was one of those services, because that was the first thing, the first duty of the morning. Last, you know, it's not one of those great praise the Lord days, you know what I'm saying? It was like, oh boy, 
you know, and I had a great chapter, which should have been like one of those, you know, yeah, and it was like, yeah, at the end of it, you know, because it just put such a damper on everything, because you don't want to see that. You don't want to see that. This, Paul's not writing this with joy. But I remember going out of church and a young man who I was working with at the time, and um, that was his buddy. It was his friend. And he was not happy with me. And he was uh, voicing his opinion to me. And I stopped him and I said, brother, would you rather I just let it go and just affect the church? And I said, listen, if they hear it, they'll rectify it. And if they rectify it, that door's open. We want reconciliation. Well, eventually that's, that is what happened, I'm happy to say. But it took three, I think three years for them to get that situation under control. But they called us, I set them up, they they told us how the Lord had worked in their lives and what had happened. We said, hey, praise the Lord. Come on home. And it was, and you know what the cool part was? Was they were so accepted back into the fellowship like nothing ever happened. And that was the beauty of it. And that's really what the Lord is always seeking. You don't want to have to do it, but when you do do it, you want to do it biblically and you want to do it in the spirit of meekness and the spirit of love. But I would challenge not only you sitting here, but those listening to me by radio who are attending God knows how many different churches. How many times have you ever seen it happen? I would venture to say, and I'm not a gambling man, but if and I were, I would bet every dime that I do and do not have on the fact that you haven't seen it much. Why? Because we'd rather allow the sin to just come in and ruin the fellowship, because it does. It has an effect, but it's not supposed to. You know, Paul goes on, and he says, to deliver such a one, it's an interesting thing, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. What's he mean by that? I don't know any Bible teacher, and I've read a lot of commentaries, that could definitively tell you what he means by that. But I have an idea. There is a difference between the flesh and the body. So often when people read this, they think that, I actually had a guy tell me one time, you know, if you don't straighten your life out, and God, God will kill you. I said, really? How come we're not all dead? Because <laughs> let's face it, man, you know, most of us, that's what we deserve. But he had interpreted this as though Paul's going, I've delivered this man over for the destruction of the flesh. He thought he meant for Satan to, to God to allow Satan to kill the man. I was going, nah, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about that life of the flesh, that giving in to sin, that sinfulness of the flesh. Paul actually wrote about a man by the name of Hymenius. And he said, I have delivered such a one unto Satan that he might learn not to blaspheme. To deliver somebody unto Satan as a body, as a church body, is to put them outside of the church and away and out from underneath of that umbrella of protection. What's that do? Well, listen. Sin, my friends, brings its own retribution. It just does. When a person gives their life over to sin, they don't need me inflicting more punishment upon them. Why? Because I'll guarantee you, and I'm speaking from personal experience, their sin will bring about the repercussion. Because when you give in to that, and that becomes your style, your life situation, Satan will take you to the end of that. Now, if you're a child of God, Get me straight. Let me get you straight. If you're a child of God, your sin is temporal. You know that. It does not affect you eternally because Christ has taken care of that at the cross. Thus, 1 John, his blood continually cleanses us from sin. But it does affect you here and now. And it will affect every aspect of your life. Not just you personally, 
but those around you, those that you love, those outside, the church, and everything else. So when Paul says, listen, I delivered such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that is, let Satan have him for a while. Let him take him to the end of his sin. Let him see what the end result of that will be, because I'll guarantee you, if he's a real child of God, if she's a real child of God, once they get into that sinful situation, it will not take that long before they see the end of that and before they start to get the repercussions and realize what's going on in their life and the destruction that that it does. It has its own re, 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 repercussions. It just does. And so often, I think, within the body of Christ, I was talking with a brother today, local pastor, who after 30, I won't go into it, uh, but I'm sure that, you know, the churches, you know how they are, grapevines and those type of things. This guy, after 30 years, very successful ministry here locally, has suffered uh, a sling and arrow of the enemy. Man did something when he was a young man, 22 years old, I believe. What he did was heinous, I, absolutely. But he wasn't a believer. He wasn't a believer. Okay? He's had a ministry for over 30 years, I think. Very successful. If I mention it, you'd all know him. And when he was a young man, he listened to some very bad advice, either from another pastor or from an older Christian. But either way, it was bad advice. And here's what his advice was. He, he asked a simple question. With this sin that I have committed, you know, and, and that had been repented of, keep that in mind, Will this hinder me from being a pastor? And the guy rightly said no. But he was advised to do something which basically made it secret. Okay? That was the mistake. Because when he made it something that was not publicly known, the enemy simply went locked and loaded with that thing waiting for the right moment. Just the right moment. Sharpshooters in the army are very interesting men. Very educated guys. Very technically minded. Because when you're shooting a mile away, in some cases even further, it takes a lot of math to be able to hit that. You got to know everything, and you have to be patient. And Satan, if anything, is very patient. And he loaded that round. And this young man was in the ministry, and God was blessing his ministry, and his ministry was growing and growing and growing and growing. And just at the right time, he pulled the trigger. And this thing that was before he was a Christian, came out. And everybody wanted to jump on the bandwagon and remove him. Even though his life has been exemplary ever since he's been a pastor. Exemplary. Never a problem since because this happened before he was a Christian. And I told this young man today who attends his church, I said, listen, you pray for that man. And I says, I don't know him personally. I know people that do. But if I was counseling him, here's what I would tell him to do. You walk back into that church on Sunday morning, you take your pulpit back. Because those who are advising you now, brother, either don't understand the grace of God or they got something to gain. And when you have a church that successful, I know what they have to gain. See, restoration it's listen let me give you a little thing it's kind of a side note if you have an issue in your life i don't care what that sin was whatever it was be open about it begin to incorporate that thing if you will as a testimony because here's what will happen now i'm not telling you that you should go about talking about every rotten thing you've ever i'm not saying that but if you have something that you know is detrimental, that if somebody else heard it, you know, they would go, oh, wow, whoa. If that's the case, 
incorporated into your testimony. Incorporated into the story of his glory in your life. Why? Because what you effectively wind up doing is disarming the enemy. You take the round out of the gun of Satan. Because he's waiting for the right time. When you, when you think not, he'll fire that at your ministry and he will try to de destroy you with it. And so often he is successful in that because we have not incorporated that thing into our testimony. Let it become a part of the story of his glory, of his grace and his mercy and his restoration. When I went through my own bout, you know, coming out of 2012, I wrote a book. I don't mention it a lot. I, I did publish it, but I wrote it for pastors. I didn't really write it for pewborners, just to be honest. I wanted to help other pastors avoid a pitfall. But I had other pastors, I had 12 of them that I had chosen, men that I respected, and I knew men who respected me. And as I formulated my manuscript, which took two, three years, I kept sending out the manuscript. Went through like 15 of them. One of them in particular, man's been on radio for over 40 years, very famous man. I, I won't even mention his name. But he was on my show a lot, and we became friends. He, he was at the church, and, and I had an enormous respect for him. And I remember him writing to me, and he said, do not publish this book. So I called him. And I, he was the only one who said this. And I said, why would you say that? He said, you ever want to preach again? You ever want to pastor again? I said, I want to do what the Lord wants me to do, brother. And he says, do not publish this book. It's too brutal. It's too honest. I said, but that's why I need to do it. I said, you know, I love you and I respect you, but I have to do what God's called me to do. Because if you keep something a secret, listen to me, you know, he that hideth his sin will not prosper. That's what the Bible says. And that's what happens so often. So be open and honest. Disarm the enemy. This pastor listened to some bad advice years ago. But you know what? His life has been exemplary. He needs to just simply walk in there and take that church back. And if he has any elders that don't like it, show them the door. Because if they cease to eld, they cease to be elders. And anybody that doesn't understand the grace and the restoration of God is not an elder, a deacon. He's simply an immature infant in Christ. And I feel bad for this man. I pray for him a lot. But that's what I told him. Galatians 6.1, if you who are spiritual, see a brother taken in a fault, you are the ones who to do the restoring. Go in there. Bring it. That's the bottom line. This is what Paul is talking about. The bottom line is always to restore. Get that brother on the right track and restore them back. Look at verse 6. He says, For your glory is not good. Know you not that a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump? This is something that we tend to forget. The word leaven here, and most of you women who are bakers, maybe some men who are bakers. I know I'm not one, but I, my brother is. He's actually talking about sourdough. You know what sourdough is, right? And the women, when they would bake, they would take sourdough, as they still do, and they'd take a little piece of sourdough, and they keep that back. So when they make bread the next time, they simply add that little lump of sourdough to the new batch, and it will permeate the whole batch. And, and you got a whole new bread. You take a piece of that, you do it, the, and you just keep it going. I remember watching one baking show, and the guy said that the sourdough starter, that they call it, that he had was over 100 years old. You know, and because they just keep it going. And that store had been in business for like 150 years, and that they could actually prove that that starter was over 100 years. But it only takes a small chunk of it to make a very large loaf rise. Why? Because in the process of fermentation, because that's what happens, it's really a putrefying effect is what it is. It putrefies. It's a rotting is what it is. It's really, I know it smells good. 
But it's really not a very pleasant process when you get down to the nit and gritty. And that's why it's such a great example of sin. In hermeneutics, of course, leaven always represents sin. Because it is a putrefying effect in a person's life. It causes that which is good to rot. It's not good. Paul says, and a little bit of it will leaven the whole lump. So what is the implication is, is that them allowing this situation to exist in the body was actually affecting every one of them. Now, put it in our perspective today. You know, think about when you have worship bands or you've got somebody who's in a ministerial position, be it a Sunday school teacher, whatever, who's living a life of sin openly. Because this man was doing this openly. This wasn't something that they were doing behind closed doors and keeping the hush-hush. No, 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 no. They knew it. And they were open about it. And why were they open about it? Because the church had not dealt with it. The church hadn't dealt with it. So these people felt very accepted in their sin. And of a, such a type of a sin that Paul says the Gentiles didn't even have a word for it. It was that gross. But because they were accepted, these people were very open about it. But a little bit of leaven leavens a whole lot. When you look at the issue of denominationalism, I'm a Paul, I'm Apollos, and you see what they want to bring in and the things that they now allow. Now, here recently, somebody sent me an article where even our own denomination wants to be okay with abortion. I got news for you. It's not okay with God. It's murder. You can call it anything you want. You can make excuses for any. Listen, there is no excuse for, for, for abortion. None. Well, what about incest, Doug? Oh, so let's kill the, the innocent for the sins of the guilty? You think God would be okay with that? Not hardly. It's crazy. But a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. To think that just because somebody else wants to believe that that's okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. It will affect everybody, as Paul the Apostle says. And thus he says in verse 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So Paul brings out this picture of the Passover to refer to the preparation for the Passover. Now some of you Gentiles might not know this, but a week prior to Passover, the Jewish women will take a feather and they'll go through the house and in the cupboards and they sweep out anything. You know, it's, it, it is ceremonial. I mean, you know, it's for the most part. But they'll go through the whole house in order to remove any leaven that might be in the house before they bake the bread, which will be turned into matzah or the unleavened bread loaves. Why? to prevent contamination because Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb who had no, and as a matter of fact, Jesus, everything at the Passover represents Christ, even the unleavened bread. Jesus even told his disciples, John 6, I believe it is, I'm that bread which came down from heaven. He talked about the manna, of course. But even in the matzah, when you look at matzah, that's why personally I like using matzah for Passover and not just for Passover, but for communion. Because in the matzah, you have the stripes and you have the, the perforations, the holes that represent the, the wounds that he took and the stripes that he took. It's just such a beautiful picture of him. Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Paul brings this out and he says, he is our Passover. You know, so purge out the old leaven, get rid of it, that you might be a new lump. Because even Christ, our unleavened bread, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, that is the, the, the agape feast that Paul's talking about, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and of wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity. If you're taking note, make note of the word sincerity here. But in sincerity and truth. Paul said as we gather, as we come together, let it be done in sincerity and truth. The word sincerity here, of course, in the Greek just simply means purity. 
but in the Latin, it's a, a folk etymology. And what it is, is it's broken into two pieces. And I like this illustration of the word because it just explains things so well. Sign, or, you know, for the first part of it in the Latin, means without. And Sarah means wax. So when it says sincere, in the Latin it means without wax. What does that mean? Well, the Romans... And some of the Greeks, when they would sculpt, as we know that they were prolific at. You know, I always wondered when I was a very young man, you know, because I, I love history. And I would look at those pictures. I would see them of these sculptures. I did wonder. And I remember this very vividly one time. I remember wondering. It would be like, wouldn't it be terrible to be like, you know, you have that statue completely done? I mean, how long did it take to make one of them? And then you're up there like next to the ear and you accidentally go, Tink, you know, and it just like the bottom of it falls off. I mean, that would, that would, that would really stink, man. That would be, what are you going to do? You know, my gosh, how are you going to sell that one? You know, it'd be like oh, the guy was deformed. I mean, how are you going to, how are you going to sell that? The unscrupulous sculptors were not about to throw away a piece of art that they had spent months, maybe years making. So what they would do is they would take wax and they would mix it with the dust and they would fix it to the statue. Now, most people go, well, that would be stupid because eventually it's going to fall off. Yes, it would. After it was sold. So when they would sell a piece, many people would even ask, is this piece sincere? which means, is it without wax? And that's why I love it, because what the word here, Paul says, let, it, let, it, let, let, let this agape feast of ours, let this, when we come together, let it be with sincerity. Let it be without wax. No adulteration. Let it be pure. And, and it even got to be to the point where that word was actually applied to everything, to wine, fellowships, Whatever the case may be, and, and it just came to be known as that which was not adulterated, that which was pure, it was sincere. I like that, you know, without wax. Paul says this is the way that our fellowship ought to be when we come together. He says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to accompany with fornicators. Now, just I'll just throw this in there. I mean, Paul says, I wrote to you in an epistle. So that means before this one. So obviously, 1 Corinthians is not 1 Corinthians, okay? People don't freak out on me. I'm not saying it's like, ooh, listen, it's what we called it, okay? 1 Corinthians is just another letter. So how many letters did Paul actually write to the Corinthian church? I don't know. Nobody knows. But evidently, more than two. <laughs> so it could have been three, four, five. We don't know. But we know it was before this one. But what did he write? He says, I wrote to you in a, in a, in a letter not to accompany... With fornicators. Yet, he says, not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or with extortioners, or with idolaters. For then must you needs go out of the world. So Paul here makes a distinction between life in the church and life in the world. He made mention of an epistle, and I told you about that, you know, it, it's just an earlier version. But he says that we're not to accompany with fornicators that are in the church. He wasn't talking about those in the world because you'd have to go out of the world. Let's face it, this is what the world is made up of. This is what were some of you. But now you are clean. Now you are washed. Now you are restored in Christ. Yeah, outside the church, but that's pretty much all we have are those type of people. Thus, in my relationship with them is one of evangelism. We get the opportunity to go and share with the fornicators and the adulterers. And the, this is what Jesus did. It's, it always bugs me, you know, when people will say, well, Jesus sat and ate with the sinners, and that's who he hung out with. Oh, well, you're an idiot. 
Have you not read the Gospels? Jesus hung out with the disciples. He walked with them. He ate with them. He slept on the same ground with them. He traveled with them. Did he associate with sinners? Absolutely. Why? Because it was them who needed the physician. He came to call sinners, he said, to repentance. So he was an evangelist also. He come preaching the gospel. But he hung out with the brethren. That's who he ate with and slept with. You know. Now, did he sit there and did he eat with sinners? Sure he did. But it was that the, the insinuation when the world says it's like somehow that's all Jesus did. No, it wasn't. Not even close. No. But Paul here is telling us that we're not to do that. He says not to accompany with fornicators, adulterers, you know, those who are in the world. Covetous, you know, the, the extortioners. Don't do it, he says. But if you didn't do it, you'd have to leave the world, he says, because this is what the world's made up of. But when it comes to the church, and we come together and worship and in sincerity, without wax, our meeting should be a totally different environment. A place where there is a heartfelt holiness. That's a word that people hate today, and I don't know why. I love it. I love holiness because it's what Jesus has made us. And I think it's good that we reverence the things of God. I don't have a problem with it. There should be a purity within the body as we come together. You can always tell. And, and I'm, let me just talk about this from a, from a worship standpoint. And I've played in a lot of worship bands, and I, and I mean this. And it's, but you can tell when there is sincerity in a worship band. Because their implication, their, their desire is not to be seen by men. Their desire is to genuinely lift up the name of Jesus, to simply have a personal worship experience, and to simply invite the congregation to join them. And when that's real, oh man... There's nothing like it. There's just, you can't fake that. Because the whole worship team will just be in unity. And not just as a, as a band. I mean, I, maybe, I, maybe it's hard to me, for me to make you guys understand as a musician, but it's, it's different. I've played with great bands. Even, even in a secular sense, I've played with great bands that are, that are you know, right on the money and it's just awesome. But it ain't worship. You don't understand what I'm saying? But man, when you get a group of people that are genuinely, their hearts are right with the Lord, you know, they're, they're, they're not living some life that is a phony thing. And they're simply coming to church and making a show. Man, it's real. That worship experience is real. And it's vastly different. And so when we come together, there should be that vast difference. There should be an air of holiness and of sincerity when we come together. Paul mentions here three basic sins. And I find it interesting, and I'll go over them quickly as we finish up. The first one, of course, he mentioned was fornication. And fornication, when you, when you look at it, I know it's an umbrella term, but basically it is a sin against yourself. It's the kind of sin that earmarks a person of selfishness. And it also is a sin that takes advantage of another person in that it is seeking to extract from that person a sexual desire or something that simply fulfills their flesh. It's very selfish. That's what fornication is. It is self-destructive. Paul was going to get to that point where we're going to get to that chapter where he says, he that sinneth, you know, in an immoral way, he that commits fornication sins against his own body. So it's a very selfish type sin. Greed, Paul mentions. And of course, greed is totally selfish because it simply seeks its own <laughs> at any cost to gain something, maybe from somebody else or whatever the case may be, but simply to gain something for their own means. And then he mentions idolatry. And idolatry, on the other hand, is a sin against God. It is the sin of worshiping something other than God, establishing idols. 
And so often, you know, people will think when you mention the term idol, they think of either just a little statue or maybe even a big one that's been carved out of wood, gold, whatever those things. And if you think that that's the limit of, of the definition, you're wrong. Because anything can become an idol. Buildings in the body of Christ are a great example because so often we, we idolize a building. We begin to think that it is, in and of itself it is holy. Now, I'm all about buildings. I come from a non-denominational background. I come from a background where most of the guys that I know probably don't like stained glass. They don't like that stuff, you know, because it's not modern enough for them. I have to admit, I like it. I like it. I, I, I want there to be an air of holiness. I, I, I realize that Paul said that God does not dwell in houses made with hands, and I know that. I know that. But I also don't want to go to a place that looks like a bar. And so many of them do anymore. And people are like, well, people don't like worshiping in a church. I just have a problem with that. I mean, maybe I'm just old. I have a problem with that. I'm going, maybe, you got, maybe if you don't like worshiping in a church, maybe you got a bigger problem than what you think. But maybe I'm just old. I don't know. But I, I like that. You know, buildings can be idols, though. People can put more stock in them. I remember Pastor Chuck telling a story about Costa Mesa and when they had moved from the little white chapel that there were people because they were growing exponentially. Thousands and thousands of people were showing up. They had to put up a huge tent. Well, they had to build. But people came to him who had been going to that little white chapel for years and they said, oh, brother, let's just build on here. Let's, you know, let's build three tabernacles to, you know, you know, cause, because I got saved here. This is where I met God and Chuck's like, look, it's a building. Tear it down. Let's build, <laughs> let's build a bigger one where we can put everybody in it, you know. But people can get that way. We can get that way. We start thinking there's more to it than what there was. It reminds me, really, of the story of Hezekiah. And if you know the story, Israel, of course, as they did so often, fell into idolatry, worshiping of other gods. Hezekiah ascends the throne. And Hezekiah was a reformer. And so he begins to tear down the vineyards where they would go out and, the, and they would you know, build their idols and they would worship their idols. And he tears it down. Hezekiah comes in and he just rocks the boat. He's tearing down the idols. He's, he's, he's demolishing everything. And then he takes the serpent that Moses had made. You know that story, right? Where Moses had made the bronze serpent. And he smashes it. Hmm. He broke it in pieces. And he said, Nehushtan. Moses had set up that serpent, if you remember because the serpents, the vipers, had, were coming into the camp. And God said for him to build this serpent and, and to make it out of brass, which is the, uh, the, the, the metal of judgment, and to attach it to a pole and lift it up. And those who were bitten, if they would simply look upon that serpent, they would be saved. Jesus made reference to this very picture, this type of picture of Christ because he said, like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so if I, the Son of Man, have lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Because the bite of sin will kill you. You will die from it. And if you don't know Christ, you will die eternally. And we need to know that. But as Jesus is lifted up, if we will look to him, then my sin, which is being judged on the cross no longer has the penalty of death upon me. It no longer brings death to me. It does not bring destruction to me. But when Hezekiah broke that, he said, Natushta. you know, it, it, what that means in the Hebrew is that it's brass. It's brass. What he's saying was that it's nothing. Listen, there was a time when it served a purpose 
But the people had began, somebody, like they always do, somebody took that serpent after it had been used, and it was like, oh, it saved so many people. Let's keep that. And the next thing you know, it's become an idol. And years later, Hezekiah has to break it because people had embraced it so much. I remember somebody asked me one time, they said, you know, they said, Doug, do you think that they'll ever find the Ark of Noah? I said, no. I've seen all kinds of people claim that they've, they've found it. I haven't, I haven't taken the tour yet, except in Kentucky. And I haven't even taken that one, really, to be honest with you. I want to, though. They haven't found it. They'll never will find it. Because it doesn't exist? No. Because God won't allow them to find it. You know why? Because they would worship it. Don't doubt that for a moment. I'm telling you now, if they were to find even a piece of the ark of any of the arks, they would build a tabernacle to it. Somebody would be up there sacrificing something to it. That's the nature of men, unfortunately. And that can be with a building, with an institution, with a serpent, with anything. But God doesn't want us to do that. God wants us to worship him in truth and in spirit. We don't need idols. We don't need those things. Buildings are great. They serve a purpose. Institutions can be great. But sometimes they need to be dismantled. Sometimes. Look at verse 11. He says, But now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, was such a one not to eat? Some of your Bibles might say not to commune. Same, same. Why? Because in the Jewish community, when we break bread together, there's that sense of being coming one with one another. I like that, even in communion, as we break bread together, you know. Paul's going, look, you can't have communion with these guys. There's a passage in the book of Amos that says, how can two men walk except they be agreed? When we allow sin in the body of Christ, when we, when we just allow it, then what we're saying is that we are one with that person. We're in agreement with that person. We're saying that's okay. God does not say that. It's not what the Lord says. Paul says, look, don't even eat with such a one. But the implication, once again, as we read earlier, is to restore them. It's not just to get them out, but it's to restore. When you look at Martin Luther, and you look at what Luther went to 500 years ago last year, during the Great Reformation, they called it a Reformation because that's what he was trying to do. Now, it, it turned into Protestantism, but really what he tried to do was reform. He tried to get the church to go back to the Word of God. Now, he was unsuccessful in that, but that's what he tried to do. As so often, we see men of God who are risen up by the Lord will raise them up, and he will tell them, they'll come in and they'll begin to, to preach as prophets, saying, return to the Word, return to the Bible. And, and, and we've seen great revivals break out because of men like that. But the real bottom line, once again, is, is that restoration. That's really what the bottom line is. But Paul says, look, until that happens, don't eat with these guys. Because when you do that, you're, you're, you're giving them a false sense of security in their own life. They need to understand there is a penalty within the body of Christ for those type of things. We want to restore, yes. But we don't want that sin to permeate and to affect, as leaven does, the rest of the body. Verse 12, he says, For what have I to do to judge them also that are without, that is outside the church? Do not you judge those who are within? But them that are outside of the church, God judges. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person, referring back to this man of this incestuous relationship. Now, just as a final note on judgment. When he's talking about judgment here, because you hear this all the time. Judge not, lest ye be judged. And the implication is, is that you're not allowed to have a discernment of right and wrong. Which is totally crazy because the Bible says you better be able to discern what's right and wrong. And that word is also judgment. 
What we don't do is condemn. We don't have that power. That only belongs to God. But within the body of Christ, we absolutely have the ability to judge what is right and what is wrong according to the Word of God. But the bottom line is always restoration. But he tells them in the very last verse, so put away this wicked one from among you. When we allow it, we give them a false sense of security and we allow their sin to actually affect the whole body of Christ. And that's not what God would have for us. He wants to see people restored. He wants to see lives that are turned around and productive in the body of Christ. Father, we love you. And we thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. And Lord, we do ask that you would help us to have the spirit of meekness, Lord. First in dealing, uh, I guess before we would even deal with brothers or sisters who are in sin, Lord, Father, help us to be introspective in our own lives so that we don't have some plank hanging out of our own, Lord, Father, before we start lopping judgment at somebody else. But Lord, give us the discernment. Give us a hunger for your word that we might know how to discern right and wrong when dealing with these issues that come up in the church. Father, we want to see a church that is strong in you, that is effective in our communities, and that has the reputation of leading people to you and upholding your word. We just love you. We thank you. We ask that you would bless your people, Lord Father, those who do not know you. I pray for them, Lord Father, that they would make a decision for Christ and they would do it today. In Jesus' name, amen.